Thoughts on Religious Experience, Chapter 6 It is proper now to inquire what are the precise effects of regeneration or the exercises of a newly converted soul, as a restoration of depraved man to the image of God, lost by the fall, is a grand object aimed at in the whole economy of salvation, it can easily be said in the general that by this change a principle of holiness is implanted, spiritual life is communicated, the mind is enlightened, their will renewed, and the affections purified and elevated to heavenly objects. Such general descriptions do not afford full satisfaction to the inquiring mind, and as we have taken into view many of those circumstances which diversify the exercises of grace in different subjects, let us now endeavor to ascertain, with as much precision as we can, what are those things which are essential to the genuineness of this work, and which, therefore, will be found in every sincere Christian. But in this attempt, great difficulty will be met in conveying our ideas with precision. Even those terms which are most used in the Holy Scriptures to designate the essential exercises of piety are differently understood, and when used convey different ideas to different persons. I will endeavor, however, to avoid this difficulty as much as possible by defining the terms which I employ. I have all along admitted that the mode of the Spirit's operation in regeneration is altogether inscrutable, and an attempt to explain it is worse than folly. We may, however, without intruding into things unseen, or attempting to dive into the unsearchable nature of the divine operations, say that God operates on the human mind in a way perfectly consistent with its nature as a spirit, and a creature of understanding and will. On this principle, some suppose that there can be no other method of influence a rational mind, but by the exhibition of truth, or the presentment of motives. Any physical operation, they allege, would be unsuitable. Their theory of regeneration, therefore, is that it is produced by the moral operation of the truth, contemplated by the understanding, and influencing the affections and the will according to the known principles of our rational nature. But respecting what is necessary to bring the truth fairly before the mind, the abettors of the theory divide into several parts. The Pelagian, believing human nature to be uncontaminated, and needing nothing but a correct knowledge of the truth, rejects all supernatural aid, and maintains that every man has full ability to perform all good actions and to reform what is a myth. By simply attending to the instructions of the Word, and exercising his own free will, by which he is able to choose and pursue what course he pleases. The semi-Pelagian agrees with this view, except in one particular, he believes that the truth, if seriously contemplated, will produce the effect stated, but that mankind are so immersed in the world of sensible objects, and so occupied and filled with earthly thoughts and cares, that no man will, or ever does, contemplate the truth so impartially and steadily as to produce a change in his affections and purposes, until he is influenced by the Holy Spirit, and, according to him, the only need of divine agency and regeneration is to direct and fix the attention on divine things. This being done, the truth is contained in the divine word, and is apprehended by the natural understanding, is adequate to produce all the desired effects on the active principles of our nature. 
there is still a third party who attribute regeneration to the simple operation of the truth on the mind, whose views are neither Pelagian nor semi-Pelagian. They hold that the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God, and that if a man should ever so long contemplate the truth with such views as natural reason takes of it, it would never transform him into the divine likeness, but that, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the sinner must obtain new and spiritual views of divine things by which he is renovated and regenerated. Yet these deny that any operation on the mind itself is necessary, as they allege that these spiritual views of truth will certainly draw after them the exercise of those affections in which holiness essentially consists. Now, in my judgment, this theory is defective in one point only, and that is, it supposes the mind, which is already in possession of doctrinal knowledge of the truth, to have this same truth presented to it in an entirely new light, without any operation on the soul itself, just as if a man was blind but standing in the clear shining of the sun's rays. This, these he feels, and can talk philosophically about the sensation of light and colors, while well, he has not in his mind the first simple perception of any object of sight. Could this man be made to perceive the visible objects around him without an operation on the eyes to remove the obstruction or to rectify the organ? The case of the soul is entirely analogous. Here is light enough. The truth is viewed by the intellect of unregenerate man, but has no transforming efficacy. The fault is not in the truth, which is perfect, but the blindness is in the mind which can only be removed by an influence on the soul itself, that is, by the power of God's creating a new heart to use the language of Scripture. The Apostle Paul was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. Two things are always necessary to distinct vision, the medium of light and a sound organ. Either of these without the other would be useless, but combined the beauties of nature and the glory of God in the invisible world are seen with delight. It is so in the spiritual world. The truth is necessary, but until the mind is brought into a state in which it can perceive it in its beauty and glory, it is heard and read and contemplated without any transforming effect without drawing the affections to God, or subduing the power of selfish and sensual desires. The fault existing in the percipient being, there must be such an exertion of divine power as will remove it, and this is regeneration. Then all the effects of the truth will take place as according to the former theory. But I seem to hear the common objection, that if the soul be the subject of any operation, this must be physical, and what is this but to make man a mere machine, or to deal with him as if he were a block? I believe that a more ambiguous, unhappy word cannot be used in physical. The best way to get clear of the myths which surround it is to drop its use altogether in this connection. Indeed, it is a term which properly belongs to another science, to natural philosophy. If the operation must have a name, let it receive it from the nature of the effect produced. This being spiritual, let it be called a spiritual operation, or as the effect produces confessedly above the powers of unassisted nature, let us call it supernatural, which is a precise technical term used by the most accurate theologians. Can the Almighty, who made the soul, operate upon it in no other way than by a mechanical force? Cannot He restore its lost power of spiritual perception and susceptibility 
of holy feeling without doing any violence to its free and spiritual nature? But I should be told that there neither is nor can be any moral or spiritual nature or disposition prior to volition in the mind. For morality consists essentially in choice, and to suppose morality to have any other existence than in the transient act is an absurdity. If this be sound moral philosophy, then my theory must fall. This is a question not requiring or admitting of much reasoning. It is a subject for the intuitive judgment of the moral faculty. If there are minds so constituted that they cannot conceive of permanent latent dispositions in the soul, both good and evil, I can do no more than express my strong dissent from their opinion and appeal to the common sense of mankind. Some of my most serious readers, I know, will object to my theory of the mind's operations in one important particular. They are so far from thinking that any illumination of the mind will produce holy affections that it is a radical principle in their philosophy of religion that light always increases or stirs up the enmity of an unregenerate heart, that the more unholy beings know of God, the more they will hate Him, as is supposed to be proved by the experience of thousands under conviction of sin, and by the case of the devils who believe and tremble but never love. The difference between me and these persons is not so grave as at first view it seems. Their error consists, if I am right, in making too wide a severance between the understanding and the will, between the intellect and the affections. I am ready to admit that all the knowledge which you can communicate to a man remaining unregenerate may have the tendency of increasing or stirring up his enmity to God and his law, but observe that I make illumination the first effect of regeneration. And I hold that no unregenerate man is, while in that state, any more capable of spiritual perception than a blind man is of perception of colors. The blind man, however, has his own ideas about colors, and may understand their various relations to each other, and all the laws which regulate the reflection and refraction of light as well as those who see. This was remarkably exemplified in the case of Dr. Sanderson, who, though blind from his early infancy, delivered an accurate course of lectures on light and colors in the University of Oxford. Just so, an unregenerate man may be able to deliver able lectures on all the points of theology, and yet not have one glimpse of the beauty and glory of the truth with which he is conversant. The sacred scriptures represent all unconverted man as destitute of the true knowledge of God. If there be a clear truth in the laws of mental operations, it is that the affections are in exact accordance with the views of the understanding. If men are unaffected with the truth known, it must be because they do not know it aright. Neither can they perceive it in its true nature until they are regenerated. Did any man ever see an object to be lovely and not feel an emotion corresponding with that quality? And what unconverted man ever beheld Christ as represented in Scripture, the beauty and glory of God? Hence, that doctrine is not true which confines depravity or holiness to the will, and which considers the understanding as a natural and the will as a moral faculty. The soul is not depraved or holy by departments. The disease affects it as a soul. And, of course, all faculties employed in moral exercises must partake of their moral qualities. There is, however, no propriety in calling either of them a moral faculty, for although both understanding and will are concerned in every moral act, 
yet not one hundredth part of the acts of either partakes of a moral nature. The will is just as much a natural faculty as the understanding, and the understanding is as much a moral faculty as a will. But in strict propriety of speech, the only faculty which deserves to be called a moral faculty is conscience, because by it only are we capable of moral perceptions or of feelings. I'm afraid that I've gone too far into abstruse distinctions for most of my readers, but there are thousands of plain private Christians in our country who not only can enter into such disquisitions, but will relish them. I come now to what I intended when I began this subject to describe as exactly as I can what are the exercises of the new heart or the regenerate man. And here my appeal is to no theories, but to experience combined with the Word of God. Every man on whom this divine operation has passed experiences new views of divine truth. The soul sees in these things that which it never saw before. It discerns in the truth of God a beauty and excellence of which it had no conception until now. Whatever may be the diversity in the clearness of the views of different persons, or in the particular truth brought before the mind, they all agree in this, that there is a new perception of truth. Whether you ascribe it to the head or the heart, I care not. It is a blessed reality, and there are many witnesses of sound mind and unquestionable veracity who are ready to attest it as a verity, known in their own delightful experience. But as the field of truth is very wide, and divine things may be perceived under innumerable aspects and relations, and as there is no uniformity in the particular objects which may first occupy the attention of the enlightened mind, it is impossible to lay down any particular order of exercises which take place. The case may be illustrated by supposing a great multitude of blind persons restored to sight by an act of divine power. Some of them would be so situated that the first object seen would be the glorious luminary of day. Another might receive the gift of sight in the night, and the moon and stars would absorb his wandering attention. A third might direct his open eyes to a beautiful landscape, and a fourth might have but a ray of a light shining into a dark dungeon without his knowing whence it came. Of necessity, there must be the same endless variety in the particular views of new converts. But still they all partake of new views of divine truth, and the same truths will generally be contemplated sooner or later, but not in the same order, nor exhibited to all with the same degree of clearness. Now, according to the views which I entertain, the spiritual knowledge granted to the regenerated soul is nothing else but saving faith, for knowledge and belief involve each other. To know a thing and not believe it is a contradiction, and to believe a thing and not know it is impossible. Faith is simply a belief of the truth when viewed as distinct and discriminated from all other mental acts. Some will be startled at this nakedness of faith, and many will be ready to object that it is to make faith to be no more than a bare assent of the understanding to the truth. Well, if it be uniformly accompanied by all holy affections and emotions, what is the difference? But I deny that, as described, it is a naked assent of the understanding, as those words are commonly understood. The wide distinction between the understanding and will, which has very much confounded our mental philosophy, has come down to us from the schoolmen. But in making the distinction, they made simple verity the object of the understanding." 
That is what we commonly mean by bare assent. It relates to the simple truth, but the will has respect, they say, to good, every species of good. Now the faith of which I have spoken, at the same time contemplates the truth and the beauty, excellency, and goodness of the object, and also its adaptedness to our necessities. All these things are comprehended in the views which the Holy Spirit gives to the mind. Therefore, though faith be a simple, uncompounded act, a firm belief or persuasion, it comprehends the objects ascribed both to the understanding and the will. Here I shall be met by a definition of faith, which makes the act simple also, but considers that act to be trust or confidence. This, the reader will remember, is Dr. Dwight's definition of faith. And the only objection to it is that it is too narrow to comprehend all that belongs to the subject. Trust is nothing else than the firm belief or persuasion of the truth of a promise. When we say that we trust or have confidence in a person, it relates to some promise. This definition comprehends all acts of faith which have a promise of God for their object, and these are certainly the most important acts and accompanied with the most sensible emotions. But all divine truth is not in the form of a promise. The whole word of God is a proper object of a true faith. And a large part of divine revelation is taken up with histories, prophecies, doctrines, and precepts. The Christian believes all these as well as the promises. Here faith is the first act of the regenerated soul, and the most important act, for it draws all holy affections and emotions in its train. But though it sweetly mingles with every other grace, it is distinct from them all. All its diversified acts arise from the nature of the truths believed, and men may enumerate and name as many of these acts as they please. Still the nature of faith remains simple. It is a firm persuasion or belief of the truth, apprehended under the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Necessarily works by love and purifies the heart. For divine things doth discern cannot but excite the affections to holy objects, by which sinful desires and appetites will be subdued. And when we are persuaded of the truth of God's gracious promises, there will always be a sweet repose of soul, because the promises contain the very blessings which we need. And to be assured that there are such blessings for all who will receive them, and especially if the soul is conscious that it is exercising faith, will produce sweet consolation. There is joy and peace in believing. According to the view of faith now given, there is nothing mysterious about it. To believe in divine truth is an act of the mind, precisely the same as to believe in other truth. And the difference between a saving faith and a historical or merely speculative faith consists not in the truth believed, for in both they are the same, nor in the degree of assent given to the proposition, but in the evidence on which they are respectively founded. A saving faith is produced by the manifestation of the truth in its true nature to the mind, which now apprehends it, according to the degree of faith, in its spiritual qualities, its beauty and glory, and sweetness, whereas a historical or speculative faith may rest on the prejudices of education or the deductions of reason. But in its exercise there is no conception of the true qualities of divine things. The humblest, weakest believer possesses the knowledge of God, hidden from the wisest of unenlightened men, according to that saying of Christ, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them to babes. On the subject of experimental religion, our dependence must not be on the theories of men, but on the unerring word of God, and on the facts which have been observed in the experience of true Christians. In the exercises of new converts, there is, in some respects, a remarkable similarity, and in others a remarkable variety. All are convinced of sin, not only of life, but of heart. All are brought to acknowledge the justice of God in their condemnation, and to feel that they might be left to perish without any derogation from the perfections of God, and that they have no ability to bring God under any obligations to save them by their prayers, tears, or other religious duties. All true Christians, moreover, love the truth which has been revealed to their minds, and are led to trust in Christ alone for salvation, and they all hunger and thirst after righteousness, and resolve to devote themselves to the service of God, and prefer His glory above their chief joy. But besides these varieties already described, as arising from several causes, there is often much difference in their exercises, arising from the particular truths which they are led to contemplate when their eyes are first open. I do not mean to go over the ground which we have already passed, otherwise than by a statement of facts from authentic sources, which may serve to corroborate and illustrate the statements already given. Perhaps no man who has lived in modern times has had a better opportunity to form an accurate judgment of facts of this kind than Jonathan Edwards, and few men who ever lived were better qualified to discriminate between true and false religion. It is a thing much to be prized that this great and good man has left a record of that most remarkable revival which took place in Northampton, New England, in the year 1734 and onwards. This narrative was written soon afterwards and was communicated to Dr. Watts and Dr. Guyot, who united in a preface which accompanied the narrative when published in London. In this account, carefully drawn up, we have a satisfactory account of the exercises of the subjects of this work with the varieties which were observed in the experiments of different persons. The leading facts have here been selected from the narrative so as to occupy the least possible room. To any who take an interest in the subject, these facts cannot but be gratifying. And however the narrative may have been perused by some, yet it will not be disagreeable to them to have some of the prominent traits of the religious exercises at that time presented to them in a condensed form. Edwards informs us, quote, that there was scarcely a single person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. And although he does not pretend to know the precise number of converts, he is of opinion that it could not be less than the judgment of charity than three hundred. Our object is not to abridge the narrative, but merely to select the account of the variety of exercises experienced as they are given. Quote, there is a great variety, says he, as to the degree of trouble and fear that persons are exercised with, before they attain any comfortable evidence of pardon and acceptance with God. Some are from the beginning carried on with abundantly more hope and encouragement than others. Some have had ten times less trouble than others, in whom the work yet appears the same in the issue. The awful apprehensions persons have had of their misery have, for the most part, been increasing the nearer they have approached to deliverance. 
Sometimes they think themselves wholly senseless and fear that the Spirit of God has left them, and that they are given up to judicial hardness, yet they appear very deeply exercised with that fear, and in a great earnestness to obtain conviction again. Many times persons under great awakenings were concerned because they thought that they were not awakened, but miserable, hard-hearted, senseless, sottish creatures still sleeping on the brink of hell. Persons are sometimes brought to the borders of despair, and it looks as black as midnight to them a little before the day dawns on their souls. The depravity of the heart has revealed itself in various exercises in the time of legal convictions. Sometimes it appears as in a great struggle, like something roused by an enemy. Many in such circumstances have felt a great spirit of envy towards the godly, especially towards those thought to have been recently converted, as they are gradually more and more convinced of the corruption and wickedness of their hearts, they seem to themselves to grow worse and worse, harder and blinder, more desperately wicked instead of growing better. When awakenings first begin, their consciences are commonly more exercised about their outward vicious courses, but afterwards are much more burdened with a sense of heart sins, the dreadful corruption of their nature, their enmity against God, the pride of their hearts, their unbelief, the rejection of Christ, the stubbornness of their will, and the like. Very often, under first awakenings, they set themselves to walk more strictly, confess their sins, and perform many religious duties with a secret hope of appeasing God's anger. And sometimes, at first setting out, their affections are so moved that they are full of tears in their confessions and prayers, which they are ready to make much of, as if they were some atonement, and conceive that they grow better apace, and shall soon be converted. But their affections and hopes are short-lived, for they quickly find that they fell, and then they think themselves to be grown worse again. When they reflect on the wicked working of their hearts against God, they have more distressing apprehensions of His anger, and have great fears that God will never show mercy to them, or perhaps that they have committed the unpardonable sin, and are often tempted to leave off in despair. When they begin to seek salvation, they are commonly profoundly ignorant of themselves. They are not sensible how blind they are and how little they can do to bring themselves to see spiritual things aright and towards putting forth gracious exercises in their own souls. When they see unexpected pollution in themselves, they go about to wash their own defilements and make themselves clean, and they weary themselves in vain, till God shows them that it is in vain, and that their help is not where they have sought it. But some persons continue to wander in such a labyrinth ten times as long as others, before their own experience will convince them of their own insufficiency so that it is not their own experience at last that convinces them, but the Spirit of God. There have been some who have had not great terrors, but yet have had a very quick work. Some, who have not had very deep conviction before the conversion, have had much more of it afterwards. God has appeared far from limiting Himself to any certain method in His proceeding with sinners under legal convictions. There is in nothing a greater difference in different persons than with respect to the time of their being under trouble, some but a few days, and others for months and years. As to those in whom legal conviction seem to have a saving issue, the first thing that appears after their trouble is the conviction of the justice of God in their condemnation, from a sense of their exceeding sinfulness, 
Commonly, their minds immediately before the discovery of God's justice are exceedingly restless in a kind of struggle or tumult, and sometimes in mere anguish. But commonly, as soon as they have this conviction, it immediately brings their minds to a calm and unexpected quietness and composure. And most frequently then, though not always, the pressing weight upon their spirits is taken off, or a general hope arises that sometime God will be gracious, even before any distinct particular discoveries of mercy. Commonly they come to a conclusion they will lie at God's feet and wait His time. That calm of spirit which succeeds legal conviction, in some instances continues some time before any special and delightful manifestation is made to the soul of the grace of God is revealed in the gospel. But very often some comfortable and sweet views of a merciful God, of a sufficient Redeemer, or of some great and joyful things of the gospel immediately follow, or in a very little time. And in some, the first sight of their desert of hell, of God's sovereignty in regard to their salvation, and a discovery of an all-sufficient grace are so near that they seem to go together. The gracious discoveries whence the first special comforts are derived are in many respects very various. More frequently, Christ is distinctly made the object of the mind in his all-sufficiency and willingness to save sinners. But some have their thoughts more especially fixed on God, in some of his sweet and glorious attributes manifested in the gospel and shining forth of Jesus Christ. Some view the all-sufficiency of the grace of God, some chiefly the infinite power of God in his ability to save them and to do all things for them. In some look most to the truth and faithfulness of God. In some, the truth and certainty of the gospel in general is the first joyful discovery they have. In others, the certain proof of some particular promise. In some, the grace and certainty of God in his invitations, very commonly in some particular invitation, is before the mind. Some are struck with the glory and wonderfulness of the dying love of Christ and others with the sufficiency of his blood is offered to make an atonement for sin, and others again with the value and glory of his obedience and righteousness. In many, the excellency and loveliness of Christ chiefly engaged their thoughts, while in some his divinity being filled with the idea that he is indeed the Son of the living God, and in others the excellency of the way of salvation by Christ and the suitableness of it to their necessities. There is often in the mind some particular text of Scripture holding forth some particular ground of consolation, at other times a multitude of texts, gracious invitations and promises flowing in one after another, filling the soul more and more with comfort and satisfaction. Comfort is first given to some while reading some portion of Scripture, but in others it is attended with no particular Scripture at all. In some instances, many divine things seem to be discovered to the soul at once, while others have their minds fixed on some one thing, and afterwards a sense of others is given, in some with a slower, in others a swifter succession. It must be confessed that Christ is not always distinctly and explicitly thought of in the first sensible act of grace, though most commonly he is, but sometimes he is the object of the mind only implicitly. Thus, when persons have evidently appeared stripped of their own righteousness, and have stood condemned as guilty of death, 
They have been comforted with a joyful and satisfactory evidence that the mercy and grace of God is sufficient for them, that their sins, though never so great, shall be no hindrance to their being accepted, that there is mercy enough in God for the whole world, and so on. While they give no account of any particular or distinct thought of Christ, but yet it appears that the revelation of mercy in the gospel is the ground of their encouragement and hope. Yet such persons afterwards obtain distinct and clear discoveries of Christ, accompanied with lively and special actings of faith and love towards Him. Frequently, when persons have had the gospel ground of relief open to them, and have been entertaining their minds with a sweet prospect, they have thought nothing at that time of their being converted. The view is joyful to them, as it is in its own nature glorious, gives them quite new and delightful ideas of God and Christ, and greatly encourages them to seek conversion, and begets in them a strong resolution to devote themselves to God and His Son. There is wrought in them a holy repose of soul in God through Christ, with a secret disposition to fear and love Him, and to hope for blessings from Him in this way. Yet they have no conception that they are now converted. It does not as so much as come into their minds. They know not that the sweet complacence they feel in the mercy and complete salvation of God, as it includes pardon and sanctification and is held forth to them through Christ, is a true receiving of this mercy, or a plain evidence of their receiving it. Many continue on a long time in a course of gracious exercises and experiences and do not think themselves to be converted, but conclude otherwise. And none knows how long they would continue so were they not helped by particular instructions. There are undoubted instances of some who lived in this way for many years together. Those who, while under legal convictions, have had the greatest terrors, have not always obtained the greatest light and comfort nor has the light always been most speedily communicated. But yet I think the time of conversion has been most sensible in such persons. Converting influences commonly bring an extraordinary conviction of the certainty and reality of the great things of religion, though in some this is much greater some time after conversion than at first. End quote. The religious exercises contained in the preceding statement will not be new to those who have been at all conversant with revivals. Such will recognize in the account what they have observed, and will be gratified to find the same facts which they have observed recorded and published by such a master in Israel. Almost the only remark which I feel disposed to make is that it is too commonly supposed that the time of receiving comfort is always a time of regeneration, whereas this might rather be termed the time of conversion. For then the exercises of the renewed soul come to a crisis, and faith, which was before weak and obscure, shines forth with vigor. Perhaps it is a prevalent opinion among orthodox writers that the first views of the renovated soul are views of Christ, and when mere legal convictions are immediately followed by such views and their attendant consolations, this opinion may be correct. But in many cases it is reasonable to believe that the convictions experienced are those of the true penitent. And as, in almost all cases here recorded and observed by others, there is a distinct view and approbation of God's justice in the condemnation of the sinner. 
I cannot but think, agreeably to what was stated in a former chapter, that the soul has passed from death unto life before these feelings are experienced, and that may help to account for the remarkable calm which now succeeds a dark and stormy night. This revelation of Jesus Christ and the believer may be compared to the birth of a child into the light of this world, but its conception was long before. And so this interesting point in experience is the new birth. But the principle of spiritual life commonly exists before. Besides, comfort is no sure evidence of a genuine birth. Some who become strong men in the Lord are born in sorrow. They weep before they are able to smile. But in the spiritual birth, a joy and sorrow often sweetly mingle their streams. There are two reasons why faith, though one of the simplest exercises of the mind, is represented as having so many different acts. The one is a great variety in the truths believed, and the other that, commonly, various exercises are included in the account of faith, which do always accompany or follow a true faith, but do not appertain to its essence. As faith has all revealed truth for its object, the feelings produced in the mind correspond with the particular nature of the truth which is at any time in the contemplation of the mind. If, by the soul under the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the law is viewed in its spirituality and moral excellence, while there will be experienced an approbation of the will of God thus expressed, yet a lively sense of the sinfulness of our hearts and lives must be the predominant feeling. This discovery of the purity of the law and this deep feeling of the evil of sin commonly precede any clear view of Christ in the plan of salvation. And this has given rise to the prevalent opinion that repentance goes before faith in the natural order of pious exercises. But, according to our idea of faith, as given above, it must necessarily proceed and be the cause of every other gracious exercise. Commonly, indeed, when we speak of faith, we describe its maturity. But there are often many obscure but real acts of faith before the soul apprehends the fullness and excellency and suitableness of Christ. And in many cases, when some view of the plan of salvation is obtained, the single truth believed is the ability of Christ to save. And even the full persuasion of this gives rise to joy when the soul has been long cast down with gloomy forebodings of everlasting misery, and with the apprehension that, for such a sinner, there was no salvation. As faith does no more than bring the truth before the mind in its true nature, every act of faith must, of course, be characterized by the qualities of the truth thus presented, and by its adaptation to the circumstances and convictions of the sinner. All those acts of faith which bring the extent and spirituality of the law of God fully into view must be accompanied with painful emotions on account of the deep conviction of lack of conformity to that perfect rule, which cannot but be experienced when that object is before the mind. But all those invitations, promises, and declarations which exhibit a Savior and the method of recovery when truly believed under a just apprehension of their nature, must be accompanied not only with love, but joy and hope, and a free consent to be saved in God's appointed way. And when the previous distress and discouragement have been great, and the views of gospel truth clear, the joy is overflowing. And as long as these views are unclouded, peace flows like a river. 
But even in the discoveries which faith makes of Christ, there is a great variety in the extent and combination of divine truth which comes before the mind at any one time. Probably no two persons in believing have precisely the same truths in all their relations presented to them. And not only so, but it is hardly credible that the same believer, in his various contemplations of divine truths, takes in exactly the same field of view at different times. Hence it appears that the whole power of faith is derived from the importance, excellence, amiableness, and suitableness of the truths believed. And when faith is imputed for righteousness, it is not the simple act of faith which forms a righteousness. If any exercise of the renewed mind could constitute a righteousness, it would be love, which according to its strengths is the fulfilling of the law. But when the soul by faith is fully persuaded that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, this righteousness of the surety, when received by faith, is imputed, and by this alone, which is perfect, can God be just and justify in the ungodly. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet is it not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. By this faith a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word, for the authority of God himself speaketh therein, and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life, and that which is to come. But the principal acts of faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. In quote, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapters 11 and 14. This quotation, taken from a formulary known to many of my readers, contains as just and comprehensive a view of the nature of saving faith as could be given in words. But another reason why so many divine acts are attributed to faith is because other exercises are included in the description of faith, which though they always accompany it, ought not to be confounded with it. It was, two hundred years ago, a question much agitated among the divines of Holland, whether love or charity entered into the essence of faith. And in our own country, faith and love have not been kept distinct. A very prevalent system of theology makes the essence of faith to be love. Much evil arises from confounding what are so clearly distinguished in the word of God. If faith and love were identical, how could it be said that faith works by love? The Apostle Paul speaks of faith, hope, and charity, or love, is so distinct that although they are all necessary, they may be compared as to excellency, the greatest of these is charity. The celebrated Witsius in his Economy of the Covenants, in describing faith, among the various acts which he attributes to this divine principles, reckons love of the truth, and hungering and thirsting after Christ. Now it is an abuse of language to say that faith loves or desires. Faith works by love, and excites hungering and thirsting desires after Christ. 
But it may be asked, if these graces are inseparably connected, why be so solicitous to distinguish them? First, because in so doing we follow the sacred writers. Secondly, because it has had a bad effect to use the scriptural word to express what it was never designed to express. And thirdly, because of the special office of faith in a sinner's justification, in which neither love nor any other grace has any part, although they are effects of faith. When love is confounded with a justifying faith, it is very easy to slide into the opinion that as love is a substance of evangelical obedience, when we are said to be justified by faith, the meaning is that we are justified by our own obedience. And accordingly, in a certain system of divinity valued by many, the matter is thus stated. Faith is considered a comprehensive term for all evangelical obedience. The next step is and it has already been taken by some, that our obedience is meritorious, and when it defects our purge by atoning blood, it is sufficient to procure for us a title to eternal life. Thus have some, boasting of the name of Protestants, worked around until they have fallen upon one of the most offensive tenets of popery. But it would be difficult to bring a true penitent to entertain the opinion that his own works were meritorious, or could in the least recommend him to God. The whole of God's dealing with the souls of his own people effectually dispel from their minds every feeling of this kind. The very idea of claiming merit is most abhorrent to their feelings. But while it is of importance to distinguish faith from every other grace, yet it is necessary to insist on the fact that that faith which does not produce love and other holy affections is not a genuine faith. In the apostles' days, a set of libertines arose who boasted of their faith, but they performed no good works to evince the truth of their faith. Against such the apostle James writes, and proves that such a faith was no better than that of the devils, and would not justify anyone, that the faith of Abraham and other believers which did justify was not a dead faith, but living, not a barren faith, but productive of good works improved itself to be genuine by the acts of duty which it induced the believer to perform. While then faith stands foremost in the order of gracious exercises, because it is necessary to the existence of every other, love may be said to be the center around which all the virtues of the Christian revolve, and from which they derive their nature. Love of some kind is familiar to the experience of all persons, and all love is attended with some pleasure in this exercise, but it varies on account of the difference of the objects of affection. Divine love is itself a delightful and soul-satisfying exercise. The soul which has tasted the goodness of God is convinced that nothing more is necessary to complete felicity than the perfection of love. This supposes, however, that our love to God is ever accompanied with some sense of His love to us. Love, unless reciprocated, would not fill up the cup of human happiness. But to love and be beloved, this is heaven. And we love him because he first loved us. In the first exercises of a renewed mind, love to God and love to man are both brought into action. But often the prospect of deliverance from eternal misery, which threatened, may absorb the attention. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.